We'll be reading from Psalm 84. I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible. How lovely are your dwelling places, O Lord of hosts! My soul longed and even yearned for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh sing for the joy to the living God. The bird has found a house. The swallow is a nest, has a nest for herself, where she may lay her young. Even your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. How blessed are those who dwell in your house. They are ever praising you. How blessed is the man whose strength is in you, for who, in, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. Passing through the valley of Baca, they make it a spring. The early rain also covers it with blessing. They go from strength to strength. Every one of them appears before God in Zion. O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give, give ear, O God of Jacob. Behold our shield, O God, and look upon the face of your anointed. For a day in your court is better than a thousand outside. I would rather stand at the threshold of the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord gives grace and glory. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, how blessed is the man who trusts in you. Okay, our second scripture reading is from 1 Kings chapter 8. Uh, forgive us, it's a little bit all over the place. Uh, it's verses 1, 6, 10, and 11, 22 through 30, and then 40 through 43. So, just hold on. <laughs> uh, I actually printed it out to save myself the time of figuring out which one's which. So, uh, join us in, in listening, I guess. Then Solomon assembled the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes, the leaders of the ancestral houses of the Israelites, before King Solomon in Jerusalem bring up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord out of the city of David, which is Zion. Then the priests brought the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord to its place in the inner sanctuary of the house in the most holy place underneath the wings of the cherubim. And when the priests came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the, all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands to heaven. And he said, O Lord, God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth beneath, keeping covenant and steadfast love for your servants who walk before you with all their heart. The covenant that you kept for your servant, my father, David, as you declared to him, you promised with your mouth, and have this day fulfilled with your hand. Therefore, O Lord, God of Israel, keep for your servant, my father David, that which you promised him, saying, there shall, never, there shall never fail you a successor before me to sit on the throne of Israel, if only your children look to their way, to walk before me as you have walked before me. Therefore, O God of Israel, let your word be confirmed, which you promised, to your servant, my father David. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Even heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, much less this house that I have built. 
Regard your servant's prayer and his plea, O Lord my God, heeding the cry and the prayer that your servant prays to you today, that your eyes may open, be open night and day toward this house, the place of which you said, My name shall be there, that you may heed the prayer that your servant prays toward this place. Hear the plea of your servant and your people Israel when they pray toward this place. O hear in heaven your dwelling place, heed and forgive. Likewise, when a foreigner who is not of your people Israel comes from a distant land because of your name, for they shall hear of your great name, your mighty hand, and your outstretched arm, when a foreigner comes and prays towards this house, then hear in heaven your dwelling place, and do according to all that the foreigner calls to you, so that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you, as you do your people Israel, so that they may know that your name has been invoked in this house that I have built. The Word of God. Our gospel reading today is the book of John, chapter 6, 56 through 69. Uh, we're not going to jump around in our gospel text as much as we jumped around in that first Kings text. Uh, let me look again, 56. And it says, Anyone who eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in him. I live because of the living Father. I'm fine. Thank you. I live because of the living Father who sent me. In the same way, anyone who feeds on me will live because of me. I am the true bread that came down from heaven. Anyone who eats this bread will not die as your ancestors did, even though they ate the manna, but they will live forever. He said these things while he was teaching in the synagogue at Capernaum. Many of the disciples said, This is very hard to understand. How can anyone accept these things? And Jesus was aware that the disciples were complaining, so he said to them, Does this offend you? Then what will you think if you see the Son of Man ascended to heaven again? The Spirit alone gives eternal life. Human effort accomplishes nothing. And the very words I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. But some of you do not believe in me. The word of the Lord. Good morning. So have any of you ever built anything that you are proud of? I thought about this this week, and I came to the answer for myself is I probably have not. Um, my creative outlet is never going to be making pottery or painting something pretty or uh, creating a quilt or crafting a table or whatever some of you probably have this ability to do. Um, I'm not artsy in those physical mediums. That's just not my skill set. Uh, but I know some of you are. You do beautiful work. Um, it's just never been my thing. I'm more apt to write something beautiful or something like, I, I like those kind of things. I'm not a creator in that way. Now, this is not something that I could say about my dad. My dad was a woodworker and a carpenter by trade, and he showed his love and his pride and his creativity through the making of physical things. I have a jewelry box that he made me for my ninth birthday that came with a pair of earrings and a slinky. And I still have it, and I still use it. Um, when I first moved out, the first house I ever moved into with my sister when I was 20, um, he made us a coffee table. And uh, what my, my sister took it. But anyway, uh, we still have that, still use, and we love it. He made rocking chairs. He made benches. He made my parents' whole dining room furniture. That's just something that he did. And when I found out that I was pregnant with Eden, he said, I would really like to make the baby something. And so we thought about it for a little bit, and I said, Dad, what I would really like you to make is a bassinet. 
a, a small cradle, something to put in our room, you know, for the first four or five months, not the whole crib, but a small cradle. So my dad spent six months building a cradle. Um, he brought it to my uh, baby shower three weeks before Eden was born, and it had these intricate woodworkings on all of the slats. It was He had sanded it to where this hard piece of cherry wood felt soft when you touched it. It's a gorgeous piece of furniture. And he did all of this because he was proud of the baby and he was proud of us. And now it is an heirloom that we hold on to. Since then, I've had two kids. My sister has had two kids. And in that period of time, every time we've actually flip-flopped the period of time for babies. So I would use it and then I would drive it to Florida and then my sister would use this bassinet and then she would drive it back and then I would have a baby and I would use it and then we'd drive it back. And so currently, um, she has a 16-month-old, so she's done using this bassinet. And it should be back in my home, in my attic, by Christmas. I'm not having any more kids, but I want it. It's mine. Um, <laughs> but it, at the bottom of this cradle, we have etched the name of every child that has slept in it. Um, my dad did the initial etchings, and we have done the last few. And so what we want out of this, is what I want, is for my children's children to sleep in this bassinet and I want my grandchildren's children to sleep in this bassinet and I want to etch their names in the bottom of this bassinet, right? I want it to be there and I want them to remember the man that made it, the man that made it possible, right? That's what you do with heirlooms. And this is kind of the same emotions that we pick up in our first Kings text. Now, the first Kings text was kind of jumbly, and I know that. That was what was in the lectionary. But what we're reading in the first Kings text is the dedication of the Temple of Solomon, right? So we do this, um, and we have to remember that it was David, right, the father of Solomon, who wanted to create the Temple of God. But David was not allowed to create the Temple of God because of some indiscretions by King David, right? So we have Solomon completing this temple of God, but at the same time saying, let's not forget my father David. This temple is for God, but let's not forget the man whose dream made this possible. Let's dedicate this to God and allow our children and our children's children to experience God in this place and to remember their father David. And may we live out the promises of God that was made by God to his servant David. And it's a good time to be an Israelite in this first king text. You won't always find good times for these Israelites, but it's a good time to be an Israelite in this text. Everything that was promised is coming to fruition. Everything is beautiful. Everything is wonderful. The Ark of the Covenant is in the house, which is the important part. And there is forward momentum for the Israelites. It's a good time. We're proud of everything that's happening. But Solomon also learned a few things from his father. And instead of saying, look at this good thing I have done, Solomon took a step back and said, look at this good thing that God has done. He says, he says these things over and over. And he said, and may it not only be for the Israelites, but may this place be for the foreigner and for those who are afar off. And may they all know it is God who has done this. Sometimes when everything is going right in our lives, when everything is on a good trajectory, when everything is perfect, we can forget 
that every good and perfect gift comes from above. About a week and a half ago, I got a text from one of you guys, and it said, hey, there's this person who needed X amount of money by tomorrow to keep their lights on. There's an electric bill that's past due. So it took less than 20 minutes for me to call Carolyn, check the money in local missions, text this person back, and they got the bill paid. It was easy. And to me, in that moment, it was a beautiful picture of the body of Christ. Of Look how we can meet needs. We met a need for people. We saw it. We met it. We kept children out of the heat without AC in August. It's beautiful. But there is an easy way for us to look at that and say, wow, look at what Olive Branch Fellowship can do. Look at what we as a church can do. Look how good we are. But just like Solomon knew that the temple was an empty void without the Ark of the Covenant, we must realize that this place is nothing without the presence of God. And that every good thing that we have ever done is done through us and not because of us. And that the goodness itself is the very presence of God. It is God that has done these good things. Both the Israelites and us know, we are acutely aware though, that those good times are never permanent, are they? Although we're celebrating the creation of the temple in that text, we, as people modern day, have the advantage of history to look back and know that that temple didn't stand. We can look at Josephus, who says it was 427 years, 6 months, and 10 days that that building was built before it was burned down. 470 years. They had a lot of good times, right? It's a long time to have the good times of the Spirit of God. There were times that they were proud of, but those times that they were proud of disappeared where we can't find the Ark of the Covenant anymore. And they were left asking the question, where is God in the middle of this? Where is God? We can't find the Ark, and we can't find God. Our temple is gone, and our temple has burned. Sometimes we ask those questions. Where is God? My heart has been grieved in the recent weeks for our Roman Catholic brothers and sisters, if some of you have read the news, you know what I'm speaking of. I, I feel like I have read a dozen articles in the last couple weeks about the scandals of the Northeast, about extreme abuse and extreme cover-up. I read stories of mothers and fathers, and one this week I, said, I read said, we trusted him, speaking of their priests. He baptized our children. He was there when my mother died. I served beside him in food pantries for a decade, and he betrayed us. Where do you go when the people of God don't act like the people of God? Where is God when our temple is burning? Now, it could be easy for us to dismiss this Roman Catholic problem, right? They're, they're brothers in an extended sense, but they're almost like a distant cousin. They have theologies that lead to this, I've heard people say. And maybe that's true and maybe it's not. But let us not be so desensitized to the hurting of others that we turned a blind eye to our own Baptist and evangelical problems in the same realm. Right? We can look at the summer and we can see that Paige Patterson, a Baptist minister and a Baptist pastor um, who was removed from a Southern Baptist um, theological school because of the same indiscretions. 
We can look at the local Memphis pastor who ran a mega church that was removed from office and fired numerous pastors on staff because of the same issues and the same problems. And this is one that I think hurt me the most a couple weeks ago was Bill Hybels. Some of you are probably familiar with Willow Creek. Maybe you've gone to their conferences and camps, and I know I did. And I thought, how could that man do this to those people? We trusted him. I read his books. I taught his classes. We trusted him. Where is God in the middle of this? Where is God when the temple is crashing down? Where did the Ark of the Covenant go? And where is the presence of God? I've asked myself this question a few times personally, and more so in the last year than probably ever before in my life. Some of you know that we celebrated, and I'm going to use the word celebrated here. It might seem weird, but I celebrated the one-year anniversary of the passing of my dad three weeks ago. Now, for the anniversary, my siblings and my mom and a few others of us did this big canoe trip. We floated the Ghost River. I don't know if you all are familiar with the Ghost. It's up in Moscow, and you go, Dad, it's long. It took a long time. But we talked about my dad, and it was lighthearted, and it was fun, and it was physically strenuous. It was just something I needed out of that day. And it was the first thing that had to do with my dad that I didn't feel like grief just had a grip on me. I felt like I could breathe that day. Because the months after his passing, it felt like I couldn't catch my breath. By, the, by last fall, as many of you know, I was in and out of the hospital with abdominal pain and it ended up with surgery. And in that same amount of time, Wendy decided to cut off her finger and then we had that reattached and there was a bone infection and there was another surgery. And then in that same period of time, my mom had her hip replaced and came and stayed with us. There were surgeries, there were surgeries, there were surgeries. And in that same period of time, we went through the first Thanksgiving without him, the first Christmas without him, the first New Year's without him. And at some point, it felt like some sick joke to me that all I wanted to do was to be free of doctors and hospitals and places like that that reminded me of what felt like tragedy. And all I could do was do that. I had to. I had to. It was in my face all the time. And the grip of grief it felt like I just couldn't break free. So by New Year's, Corey gently sat me down. He said, I think you should see a grief counselor to help you navigate these spaces. I think you need some help. So I did. I went in January. I found a grief counselor, and I recounted all of these things to her. And I said, this is what's going on in my life, and it feels like my, my life is crashing down. And I said, is this, is this what depression looks like? Because I'm not sure what to do. I feel like I can't find God. And I feel like I can't find myself. But it was almost as if the presence of God entered that room in that moment, in that time with this woman. And she said, Alicia, you are just not giving yourself enough grace. And then she went on to explain some ideas that all of us probably know, but are so helpful when someone repeats it back to you, as counseling always is. She said, great grief is just evidence of great love, and you wouldn't want to be without that. And that God is often found in the grief. So what do we do when the temple is crashing down and we feel like we can't find God? Maybe we just need to give ourselves a little bit more grace as we walk through these hard times. And maybe we need to take a page from our friends, the Israelites, when the temple was gone and the ark was far from them, they waited 
on the Messiah. The Messiah that was promised to come. The Messiah that said He was coming. The Messiah that said He wouldn't leave us. The Messiah that promised to save the world. Sometimes we just need to wait on Jesus. And that's where Jesus enters the picture for us today is our gospel reading. This is the famous eat my flesh, drink my blood text. Y'all know this one. The part where the disciples were kind of like, is this man crazy? I'm not sure about this guy anymore. I was on the same page as him, and now I'm not so sure because I think this guy is talking about cannibalism or something strange, and I'm not here for it. Because even the disciples said in that minute, I don't, I don't understand. I, I do not understand this one, God. I don't understand. But Jesus was just trying to tell them that eternal life is found in the presence of God. That the Spirit alone gives eternal life. And that to encounter that life, we must embrace all that the Spirit has for us. When we consume the bread and the wine and the body and the blood, we are engaging in communion. Communion at the table. And communion in your prayer time with Jesus. Communion with the body of Christ. When we engage in this communion, we become the Ark of the Covenant. We become what was promised to our father David in the Old Testament, we become the promise of God, which is that the presence of God is alive in us. So where is God? It is the simple kindergarten answer. God's right here. God's right here. God's here. When we can't feel God, may we run to our fellow believers. May we run to the communion table. May we run to Him in prayer. May we run to the book of John that says, whoever does these things remains in me. And the most important part, he, I, sorry, is that we remain in Him and He says, I remain in Him. When we remain in Christ, He remains in us. He's never leaving us. He's always with us. He's perpetually by our side. So in the good times, may we run to Jesus and thank Him for all that He does. And in the bad times, may we run to Jesus and thank Him for all that He will do. And when we can't find God, give yourself a little bit more grace. And then run to Jesus. Because He's here. Let us pray.